Good morning. It's good to be back again. Uh, today we are going to be talking about, as you see up there, Adam and apes. And I have the question there, does it matter? Um, and I think as we, you know, in the church, as we think about a lot of these creation evolution issues, it's really easy to just kind of start wondering, like, why do we do this stuff? Why does it matter? And we talked about that some last week, but I think this one in particular, um, I'm going to impress upon you that I hope that it does matter. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't really be up here, right? Um, so what we want to talk about, um, first of all, you already heard about me, so I don't need to talk about it, but I want to show off my family. My kids are here today, but they're over in, you know, the kid areas. Um, and then my wife is here too, and um, my wife's parents are here, and so um, we'll be uh, talking about them in a little bit too. And um, just to show you some of the uh, research projects I've been involved in and um, describing pterosaur fossils and um, tyrannosaur tooth marks, all kinds of fun things like that. Um, so I am a, a paleontologist. But today what we want to look at is the question of human origins. Um, and this is something that is near and dear to all of us because we are human. Um, if I were up here talking about origin of you know sharks, it wouldn't be such a big deal for many of you. But um, we are all human in here, and um, the way that it is portrayed in the um, secular community, mainstream science says that humans um, evolve from animals, okay? So you see this classic, um, the progression of a human coming from an ape, and um, people always think about it restricted to that. Of course, it's a much, much bigger story than just that. Um, humans would be descended, yeah, from apes, which are types of primates, which are types of mammals, which would be descended from mammal like reptiles back to amphibians and, you know, fish. And even farther back, you could go down to invertebrates and single-celled organisms and all kinds of fun stuff like that. So they're really all interconnected, right? Um, you can't just think about human origins separately from the other origins-related issues. Um, and that's why it does actually intertwine with where sharks come from. But... Um, Today, we are going to look specifically at the question of human origins. And um, just to give you a little bit of reference, because I'm, I'm going to be talking about a lot of different origins positions um, as we go forward, and I want you to understand that um, kind of what these positions are, where they kind of fall out. And so I'm going to use a little bit of like a spectrum here, and I want you to understand that anytime you talk about positions of what people believe, you're always going to have to oversimplify. That's just the way things work. So if you feel like my position's not you know, reflected on there, I'm sorry, um, that's, that's how it works. So um, in general, what we can talk about here is that uh, we can put scripture on one side and current scientific thinking on the other side. Now, that's not to say that something on this side isn't scientific or that something on that side doesn't necessarily believe in scripture. And that's why I put this kind of um, triangle at the bottom here showing the idea of we're saying, what do you use as your um, anchor? What's your foundation here? What are you basing your ideas off of? Um, and so, you know, multiple positions are going to use both of these things, but um, which ones are finding their resting place in one side or the other, right? So um, obviously on the one, the far current scientific thinking side, we could put naturalistic evolution where there's no thinking at all about scripture. Um, or if it is, it's just kind of like, hmm, I wonder how these books came about by human authors, right? Um, there's no understanding of it having any kind of spiritual um, significance and any kind of significance for the world and for understanding origins. Um, so the other three that you see on there are positions that you find in um, churches. And so they'd be in Christianity. And um, 
theistic evolution is very similar to naturalistic evolution in the sense that the overall narrative of what happened on the history of the earth is basically the same. The difference is that you believe that God guided it, God started it. Um, you know, that would be a big difference there. Um, and so the reason that's more on that side of things is even though those people, you know, many of them are Christians and, you know, believe in scripture, they're saying on this issue, I'm putting the, um, my, my foot on the foundation of the scientific thinking is the idea. That's where I'm getting my ideas from. Um, and I think that maybe we're misinterpreting scripture. Whereas on the other side, the old earth and young earth creation, they would be saying more, we think the scriptures, what they say about origins as they're written historically are correct. And then we think that the scientific thinking will shift to reflect that eventually. Um, and so the difference between young earth and old earth creation is obviously age of the earth issues. And many people, and when I come to churches, whoa, they're in a pelvis. Um, many people think that um, they understand the distinction between looking at, on the one hand, young earth and old earth, and on the other hand, theistic evolution. They're like, oh yeah, evolution, that's bad. I remember that. But um, a lot of people don't understand the age of the earth question and why that matters. Okay, And so we will get a little bit into that today. And it's related to also evolution, of course. Um, so if we're going to really start looking at this question, we have to start by saying, what does the Bible say, right? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to break this into kind of two different ways of thinking about human origins. We're first going to look at what does scripture say and do some theological and philosophical thinking on that. And then we're going to look at the science. That's the plan for today. Okay, so the Bible says that God created the earth in six days, right? Um, and so... We can do a little exercise here. Day one, God makes light and dark. Um, and now also the earth and, you know, the heavens. And there's some other things implied in there. Um, we have day two where he separates the waters. Okay, so we have water below, water above. Day three. Yeah, plants, I heard. Plants and land. You need the land before you get the plants. Um, then day four, sun, moon, and stars. Yeah, I heard that day five, fish and birds. Um, day six. Yeah. Land animals and people. Okay. So that's the progression in Genesis one, um, for how things are made. And each day he says, you know, um, morning and evening. And he says that it was good as he looked at each day. Um, so a lot of people, like I said, they think that, oh, well, you can just shove time or evolution into that narrative and make it work. Um, but what I want to impress upon you right now is that there's a contrast between, um, those narratives. Okay. So, um, for instance, in biblical creation, if you're looking at the, the text, it says that God made the earth day one, but the sun, he doesn't make until day four. Right. But in naturalistic or theistic evolution, you had a functional sun long before you have a functional earth. Um, same thing with plants. Plants are made in day three. The sun is made in day four. Marine invertebrates are made on day five. In naturalistic evolution, plants come long after those two things. Um, in biblical creation, birds are created on day five. Land animals, like some dinosaurs, would be day six. Whereas in naturalistic or theistic evolution, birds would evolve from dinosaurs. Um, and then you are, of course, familiar with this one, that people are created specially in the creation account. Whereas if you have a naturalistic or theistic evolution, people are coming from other animals. And then there's the one everybody knows, <clears throat> six days versus 14 billion years. And so people really focus on that one. And that is a big difference, right? I mean, you know, those are not really comparable numbers. But people focus just on the time. 
And let me tell you, time is not really the issue here. The issue is chronology, order of events. Okay, the issue is the story. Is it the same story or is it not? Okay, um, and you can see that they're really not the same story. Things are not happening in the same order. They're not happening by the same causes. They're not having the same processes. It's a very different story. Okay, so the first thing we're going to do, like I said, is look at um, some different issues uh, dealing with humanity and what it means to be human from a biblical perspective. And there's a really good book you can read on this topic. It's called What Happened in the Garden. And it was written by authors at uh, Master's, at that time, Master's College. Um, and Abner Chow was the editor. And Abner Chow's chapter in there is fantastic, by the way. Um, really loved it. And also there's some really good chapters by uh, Todd Wood and Joe Francis on um, the science dealing with um, hominids. And then of course there's other great stuff in there too, but we're going to look at three specific areas, human distinctiveness, human sexuality, human death. Okay. So distinctiveness, um, uh, we are told in Genesis one that humans, both male and female were created in the image of God. Okay. But in theistic evolution, we say that humans evolved from animals and that God, they would say God added his image to some kind of, to that animal once it evolved in Homo sapiens, or maybe even later on. Um, and so the idea would be they evolved in, they got their, you know, intellectual cap- capabilities and their ability to make fire. I don't know what else. And then God says, okay, soul goes on you. You know, your um, image of God, Imago Dei, goes on you. And you might think at first, okay, you know, maybe that's not such a big deal. Why does that matter? Well, let me introduce you to problems that start when you have this situation. Okay, the first one is, if God doesn't add um, his image onto mankind until later in their evolutionary trajectory, okay, Homo sapiens is living in the same area as other species of Homo. There's Neanderthals, um, there's Homo naledi, there's some other ones that are around, Denisovans, and they look like us, they talk like us, as far as we can tell, they made fire, they made tools, they possibly made boats, Um, they wore clothes. They looked like they had religion and buried their dead. Um, at least for some of them. And, um, for Neanderthals and Denisovans, we know that we actually, um, intermarried with them. Okay. So if anyone in here is of European or Asian descent, you have some Neanderthal DNA in you. Um, so if those people are not in the image of God and just homo sapiens or just a subset of homo sapiens is, you realize this is putting us in a really precarious and unusual situation, right? Where we are interacting with things that look just like us, act just like us, talk like us, and are not in God's image. And you can realize how confusing that would be. And you also raise the question of, well, if only some of them are in God's image and not others, how do we know that everyone who's alive today is in the image of God? Is it possible that some people could have survived who were not, right? So you run into some big problems there. And you also got the problem of sin. So imagine for a minute... There's a real Adam and Eve. And and some theistic evolutionary positions, they have real Adam and Eve, some don't. But Adam and Eve um, exist. God places his image upon them. Okay, that's great, right? They understand sin. They understand guilt and concepts like that. But their parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts don't. Okay? They are still creatures without the image of God. So their uncle kills someone. That's what animals do. It's not a big deal, right? But Adam kills someone, or Cain, and suddenly it's a big deal, right? 
Um, they're, they have guilt and they feel responsibility for it and they have to um, account for their sins. And so you can see there's this really weird concept going on of where some people that look like people are not people and some people that look like people are people. And I don't know about you, but that makes me very, very uncomfortable to think about a world like that um, and how confusing that would be for people who were in the image of God. Let's talk about sexuality. We already said Genesis 1:27. God says he made them male and female. Um, but if we evolved from animals that were already male and female, then the idea of being human and male and female does not come from God's image. It comes from animals. Okay. Now you could say, well, God designed those animals and brought that through, but being distinctively just male and female then does not come from the image of God. Does that make sense? It actually comes from something else earlier on. And so what you run into is that, um, you can't claim that that's something, um, that God uniquely designed for humans in his image. Um, it actually just becomes a part of being a creature. And so if other animals can do other things, like you can have um, animals that flip genders or you can have animals that um, are homosexual or things like that, well, that's just how God made them, right? So like, why can't we carry that over to humans? Um, and so when you look at Matthew chapter 19, um, we looked at this passage last week, actually, when Jesus wants to explain what marriage is, remember, he goes back to Genesis. He says, but God made them male and female and joined them together. What God has joined, let no man separate. Um, so Jesus understood the importance of these opening chapters of Genesis to understand what it means to be male and female and to be married. Okay. Um, and so I think we have to carry those ideas over, but now let's look at death. Because this is the most important one as we're thinking through this. And I showed you a bunch of contrasts before, but I left off the most important one for now. Um, In the biblical creation model, if you actually read the text, God creates humans, but there's no death until sin enters. Okay, and Romans 5.12 makes that really clear. We'll look at that again in a little bit. Um, Theistic evolution, however, says the complete opposite. That people, whatever people were, were dying. You know, creatures were dying for millions of years when... Homo sapiens evolved, another species of homo, they were also dying. And then eventually, God put his image on some people, okay? And so the question then becomes, where do sin and death come from? Now, the text of scripture is really clear. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They brought sin into the world. Like I said, Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, so it's really clear in scripture But in the theistic evolutionary position, it's not very clear because it looks like God just made stuff with death being a part of it and sin, we don't really know. So especially if you reject a literal Adam and Eve. So um, there was a, I won't name the college, but there's a Christian college that um, has some doctrinal issues. And um, we had a group of creationists that were out there speaking in a creationist organization on campus. Um, and so a bunch of the faculty there that disagreed, um, got up and wanted to give a rebuttal, wanted to give a response to it. And so they brought like a geologist and a biologist and a theologian, a few other people, and they were expecting a bunch of science questions from the students and the students really didn't have science questions. They all had theology questions. And so when they, when it came to it, they asked, where do sin and death come from in your model? And they were saying, well, you know, we're not entirely sure text isn't really clear. And it's like, no, it is. I mean, you see what you're forfeiting when you give this up. That's the question that I want to pose for you is, you know, can you really hold to the idea of, um, these things 
evolving and happening this way and still hold to an origin for sin and death um, as being bad things. So, for instance, I like to use this little, I, I really, for the most part, nothing against Answer in Genesis, but I really don't like these little cartoons. Um, they kind of annoy me for the most part, but this one's actually pretty good. Um, and so it's pointing out like, oh, the Garden of Eden, everything is good. It's very good. That's how the text describes it. It seems peaceful and wonderful and everything. And yet, if they were to dig in the rocks there, if we were to accept the theistic evolutionary model, there's millions of years of things killing each other, struggling, disease, suffering, extinction, all kinds of stuff like that. And you wonder, is God really going to call that very good? Um, so as we think about death, there's a really helpful book, by the way. It's really short. I think it's like 23 or 25 pages long. It's just like a little booklet, but it's fantastic. It's one of the best things I've ever read on this issue. Um, and it's called Adam or Death, Which Came First? The author is Stephen Lloyd. Um, and so... One of the things he points out is that physical death is an enemy, okay? If you read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26, you will find that very thing. And I didn't bring my Bible up here with me, so we're going to be pulling this up here. Um, but this is a really, really fascinating passage. And actually, all of um, 1 Corinthians 15, as you're thinking through um, death and the afterlife and those kinds of questions, and especially the resurrection of Christ— But listen to what he says in verse 20, okay? He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, talking about Adam, right? By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, talking about Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, listen to this, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? Death is Christ's enemy. And we're not just talking about spiritual death here. We're talking about physical death because this whole passage is on the resurrection, right? He's destroying death. So if physical death, Stephen Lloyd says, has always been present, then we find Jesus conquering what he himself made as an enemy at the beginning. That makes the story of the Bible and the gospel incoherent. Do you understand? If death is just something God built into nature, then it's not really his enemy, right? That, that doesn't really make any sense. If it's the way he intended it to be, then how can Christ conquer something that he intended? Um, how can it just something that he thought was normal instead death is an intruder. It's an enemy. It's foreign. It's something to be destroyed. Okay. Really clear passage. We'll be looking at this, um, later on today, uh, revelation 21, but verse three, um, it says physical death will be no more. This is a fantastic passage. Remember where it says that God will dwell with man forever right? And the, and the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem, and that there'll be no more pain, no more dying, no more, um, crying or, Uh, suffering. But Stephen Lloyd points out, but if physical death has been present from the beginning, then this new creation is not something purchased by Christ through his death. The renewal of creation then has nothing to do with redemption from sin and everything to do with God trying to make a better job of creation than he did at the beginning. You understand the whole point in Revelation 21 is it's like, finally, it's been solved. The sin problem is over. The death problem is over. It's been fixed. But if it wasn't ever a problem, sin was a problem, but if the death stuff, the suffering stuff, the pain stuff, the disease wasn't a problem, it was just normal, then this time it's God just being like, you know what, this time I'll just try making it without that stuff. I bet they'll like that better. 
right? Like, no, the whole point is that he did make it good and it was corrupted by sin. And so God is restoring it. He's making it better. And so, of course, this leads into salvation. Where does sin come from? I already told you about that there are theistic evolutionists, not all of them, but especially the ones that reject historical Adam that would say, we don't know. But Romans 5.12 makes it very clear. Even 1 Corinthians 15, just now we read, makes it very clear. As I said, theistic evolution, it's a little bit of a question mark many times. And so if there is no definite universal sin problem, then how can we be certain that there is a universal solution to that sin problem? Okay, it really, it does interconnect, okay? Now, I want to be really careful. Um, I don't want you leaving here saying like, oh, that person believes in evolution. Well, then they're obviously not a Christian. Whoa, 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 okay? That's not how it works, all right? There, there can be confusion. We can hold conflicting ideas in our heads. There can be things that we have to work out theologically. But what I'm showing you is that these ideas are connected. It's not just a little issue. It does play into these other things, and it can really corrupt theology. Okay, so let's think about the science now. What living animal is most similar to a person? Well, it's an ape, okay? And specifically, chimpanzees or bonobos are the living ones. Um, you don't believe me? Take your kids or your nephews or nieces or, I mean, don't take someone else's kids. That's kidnapping. But take someone and go to the zoo, right? And say, go and find what animal looks the most like a person, right? They're not going to come back with a hermit crab or, you know, a lizard or, you know, a sheep or something. They're going to come back with a monkey of some kind, probably an ape, um, and this is something that's been recognized for a long time. Um, we have a lot of uh, similarities, um, especially for the animals, but there's a lot of differences. So I brought these up here. I heard someone say, he brought props. Yeah. Um, so these, uh, there's a skull of a human. Okay, this is a modern human, homo sapiens. It's not a real skull, by the way. I always want to point this out because people get confused. Um, I would not be able to hold this up here if this were a real skull, not because it'd be too heavy, but because like I would have committed a crime or something. Um, I mean, you can actually buy real skulls, but it seems like a bad idea. And, you know, it's just kind of weird. This is a model. Okay. You can tell it's not real because you can take off the top easily. See, your head doesn't do that. Hopefully. Um, it's got little hinges and stuff too. It's pretty cool. Okay. So it's a teaching model. This is also, none of these up here are, are actual ones because I don't go around, you know, harvesting bodies of chimpanzees. So you can be rest assured that I'm not some weird person that does those things. Okay. So um, we got here on my left hand, we've got a homo sapiens skull. This is a chimpanzee um, skull. And you can notice immediately these are not the same skull. Okay. You would not mistake one of these for the other. Um, What are some differences? Okay. First of all, you'll probably from back there notice even the teeth. Um, Chimpanzees have some nasty fangs going on. Um, humans do not have that. Even in vampires, it's not that big. Um, whereas a chimpanzee, it's really big. You'll also notice that the face um, on a chimpanzee is very drawn out. It has a muzzle, right? Whereas in Homo sapiens, it's pretty much flat. You can see that there. Um, we have a chin. What is the chin used for? No one knows. It's a mystery. Um, but chimps do not have those. Um, so there, take that. Um, also, you notice our cranial capacity is much larger. Our brain is like a, like a skull here is like a big old round old egg. You can see that. Um, whereas in a chimp, um, it's much smaller. Okay, it's still big. Like for an animal, that's really big. Um, and then one of the big things I'll point out is something called the foramen magnum. Okay, do you know what that means? It means big hole. Okay, Latin for big hole. It's this right here. Okay. Your foramen magnum is where your brain, which is in here, connects to your spinal column, your spinal cord, I should say. 
Um, and so it goes right through that big hole. On a human, it is right beneath, like this. So you can look around like that, okay? Um, but on a chimpanzee, it is not right here. It is back here, okay? And the reason is because chimpanzees normally walk on all fours, okay? And so if they had it right here and they were walking all fours, they would run into stuff all the time. Do you see that? Um, but instead, if you have it right here, they can actually look forward while they're walking. Um, and so you'll notice the other, other differences too, like chimpanzees have these giant brow ridges um, and they have something called post-orbital constriction. That's like, it goes like, wee, 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 like that um, with the sound effects. Um, whereas in a human, it's just like a big continuous thing there in a homo sapiens. So you can tell them apart really, really easily in the skull. And it's not just the skull either. Here I've got some pelvis, um, some hips. Okay, so this is a homo sapiens um, pelvis, hip bones. Um, this is a chimpanzee. Okay, once again, you're not going to mistake these. They're very different. Why are they so different? Because of locomotion, right? You're walking on two legs predominantly here. You're walking mainly on four. Now, a chimpanzee can walk on two legs, just like you can walk on four. Um, and... So they can do that, but they walk differently. So this is a human femur. This is, which is the thigh bone. It's this bone. Um, this is a left one. This is a left chimpanzee femur also. And so on a human, if you put the condyles right here on the table, you can see it's not straight up and down. It's angled. Can anybody see that? I'll hold it up higher so you can see it. But in a chimpanzee, it's exactly straight up and down. Okay. And the reason for that is articulating the femur with the hips, okay? So um, having it angle in, I'm going to try and do this without breaking something. Here we go. Okay. This allows us to have our feet directly beneath our bodies if it's angled in. If it were out like this, we'd have to walk around like this all the time, okay? Which is how chimpanzees walk, right? If you ever watch them walking at a zoo, um, they walk like this, right? With their, and sometimes they'll have their hands up like that when they walk around um, because they're trying to balance like that. But we can walk with our feet directly beneath us so you can pass those tests where you have to walk on a line, right? Um, and that's, like, that's a very useful thing we have because we are designed to walk that way, which is really cool. So when people look at all these differences, it's easy to be like, well, I mean, these are clearly different creatures. Um, but they recognized back in the day that um, if... Humans are living things, and all living things did evolve from a common ancestor. Still, despite all those differences, the apes are the closest thing. And they predicted in the fossil record that we would find animals that look transitional between apes and humans. And so the first one of those that was found that's really well-known were Neanderthals. Okay? And so you're seeing up there the very first fossil of a Neanderthal ever found. It was a skull cap. Um, and it definitely is human, but you'll notice that there's really big brow ridges in the front. Um, and so they do differ from humans in the skull. This is a Neanderthal skull right here, Homo neanderthalensis, okay? So you'll notice it looks a lot more like this guy than it does this guy, right? Um, but it has some differences from modern human. For instance, on average, their brains are actually bigger. You can see that. Well, you can see the skull is bigger. You can imagine the brain inside. Um, that would be icky to show your brain. Okay. Um, you can also notice that the face doesn't, isn't as straight as in a modern human. It actually slopes out in the front. Do you see that? And there's no chin, which, as we said, we don't know what that does. Um, and then there are pronounced brow ridges here, 
Little bit of postorbital constriction right there. There's a few differences is the point. Um, but the rest of the skeleton looks remarkably like a human. We know they made tools. They made fire. They made clothes. They buried their dead. They had art. Um, they had built shelters as far as we can tell. Um, and as I said, if you're of European or Asian descent, you have Neanderthal DNA in you. I did the 23andMe thing. Um, and they used to tell you what percentage Neanderthal you were. And then they stopped doing that, which is sad. So now they just tell you like how many alleles line up with, you know, ones in um, Neanderthals and stuff. Um, so this started off, you know, looking very much like a, you know, clear transitional form. And it does have some unique features, but, you know, pretty much everybody now is saying, yeah, if you had met one of these guys, you would have said that's a human. Like you, you know, might have looked a little bit different, would have had a very small forehead. That's one thing you'll notice. Okay. So like versus we have enormous foreheads, you can see. Um, and uh, like that would have been a little bit different. But besides that, it would have just looked like a normal person. Um, we also have Homo erectus or Homo ergaster. Ergaster is the, the African species, but many people just lump them together in Homo erectus. Um, so these are first found in 1891, and um, they're the first hominin we find outside of Africa, stratigraphically in the record, as you make your way up the column. Um, their skulls are even more different. Okay, so this is um, Lake Turkana boy. Um, so he was like a teenager. Um, and you can see it is considerably smaller than a modern Homo sapiens skull. Um, it does have some brow ridges that are mainly broken off here, and the face is much more sloping. Um, but if you look at the rest of the skeleton, which I've got some pieces of it here, okay, so here are the hips for Homo ergaster. It's very similar, okay? Um, here's the femur, which, by the way, Lake Turkana boy broke his femur, which would have been very painful. I don't know what point in his life he did that, but that's awful. Um, and you can see it is slanted, just like a Homo sapiens, not like a chimpanzee. So once again, it's very different looking. We know they made stone tools. Um, they look like humans. Um, and so many creationists have said, yeah, these do look like humans. They're unusual, unexpected maybe, but they're humans. Then we get to Australopithecus, okay? Um, so there are lots of species. There's Afarensis, which is Lucy. Um, there's Africanus. Um, and then there's even some other ones. This one is maybe uh, Australopithecus prometheus. They haven't really named it for sure. Um, but I've got here, I don't have Lucy's skull right now. That's because I don't know where it is. But I, we will find it, okay? Um, what I do have instead is an Australopithecus africanus skull, so related species. Um, and this one is called Mrs. Plez. And do you see how there's like this weird break right here. That's because they got out of the rock with dynamite. It's a whole story. Um, but you can see that um, it does have very forward-facing eyes. It's very small. Um, this is an adult, by the way. Um, and so it has kind of like a mixture of features, um, things you might expect in an ape and things you might expect in a human. Um, but what's really interesting about these Australopithecines is when you look at their skulls underneath, you can find the foramen magnum, and it's actually much closer to a human position than a chimpanzee position. So from the skull, you would guess they'd be walking upright. And this is confirmed. I do have the other pieces of Lucy. I don't know where the skull is. Um, it's a whole big question. Okay. Um, and so this is the hip. You'll notice the hip actually looks very similar in many ways to a Homo sapiens or an erectus, not as much like a chimp. You can see that there and um, matches what you'd expect to see in something that's walking on two legs. Here's the femur, 
and it's little, but you'll notice it's slanted. It is not like the chimp. So when you put all those pieces together as a paleontologist, you would conclude that Australopithecines like Lucy and Africanus and Paranthropus, these things actually walked upright, um, more like a human than a chimp. Now, that's kind of weird because they're apes, as far as we can tell. Um, they don't have stone tools. Um, they weren't making fire, as far as we could tell. Um, but it looks like they could walk upright. And they also have very, very long arms, typically. And so it turns out that this femur thing is not just unique to animals that walk normally bipedally like us, but you can also find a lot of South American monkey species um, have femora that do this angle here. And that's because they have to walk on branches like an acrobat and they have to walk toe-to-toe or toe-to-heel like that. And so that may be part of why Australopithecines have this, although they could definitely walk on the ground too, like a person. And then there's many, many more, okay? Um, I can't go through all of these. We don't have time. There's Habilis and Rudolfensis and um, Naledi and Sediba and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and it's, it's very interesting. But just to tell you, you know, 50 years ago, we didn't have a lot. Now we do. Okay, it's still nothing compared to like the amount of dinosaur skeletons we have, but we have a lot of um, hominin fossils to work with. And so people create uh, phylogenies with this and they infer human evolution. And of course, as we said, we don't think that's what's happening. Scripture seems pretty clear that um, humans were specially created in the image of God. So what are our options as a creationist? Okay, well, number one, we could just say only Homo sapiens is human and all other things are animals. Okay, which is what some people do, as I said, especially some theistic evolutionists and some old earth creationists. But we've already talked about the problems there, especially since, you know, I contain some Neanderthal DNA through intermarriage. So what does that mean? Um, am I part animal? That's my question. Um, so another possibility, and it's the same issue, fossil hominins represent hybridization between humans and apes. Not comfortable with that one. Um, that's really weird. A lot of theological questions about the soul there. And um, that's a, kind of a strange Seventh-day Adventist idea. It doesn't pop up as much in other, um, other groups. Uh, another possibility is we just draw an arbitrary line. Okay, so this is what a lot of creationists have done over the years, is they've just said, okay, well, that kind of looks like that's a human. That kind of looks like a human, iffy, not a human. And we just like draw a line somewhere. But the problem is, each person that looks at it might draw a line different places. And it's not very scientific, right? Like, could you imagine, like, here, can you classify these things for me? Yeah, um, those are kind of blue and those are kind of gray. Well, okay, is that helpful at all? Does being blue or gray tell us anything about the animal? Um, so that's not a very good scientific way. So instead, what, we're gonna, what I'm going to suggest we do is something called barominology, which is a study of created kinds, and we're going to use statistical barominology. So we're actually going to use statistics and math and stuff to um, let a computer compare things, create a little plot for us, and then we try and understand what that plot means, okay? So I've got some plots up there for you. I don't expect these to just like jump out like, oh my goodness, like right away, um, because they're kind of weird. But I give you a for instance here on the one on the right. Let's just focus on that one. You can see different colored circles. So there's yellow and red and green and grayish blue. I don't know what the, it's blue up there, but it's kind of grayish up here. Um, so yellow are things that are all assigned to the genus Homo. So that's Homo sapiens, Homo neanderthalensis, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, all those things. Um, red are, and green are different types of Australopithecines, and the blue-gray are chimpanzee and gorilla, okay? And what this method does is the more similar two things are, the closer they are together, the closer the dots are. 
And the farther away they are, the more different they are. And this is calculated, like I said, by a computer program. And so what you can see there is all of the yellow circles are very close together. And they're far away from those red ones, those green ones, and those bluish gray ones, right? Um, and so that's what you'd expect to see. So when we see continuity, things close together, and discontinuity, things far up away from, from each other, um, we can say, hey, that really looks like we might be looking at a created kind right there. And so we'd suggest that all of those different species of Homo are all humans, and that things like Australopithecines and chimps and, and gorillas are not humans. Now, the weird one is this guy right here, Australopithecus sediba, the little green dot. You'll notice he's not with the other green dots. He's with the yellow dots. Okay? Why would that be? And so every analysis that Todd Wood has run on this, uh, who's the main guy working on this problem right now, um, Sediba keeps cr clustering with the humans, not with the Australopithecines. And so if you go back and read the literature on this, when they first found Australopithecus sediba, they said, well, it's got some human-like traits and some Australopithecine-like traits. It could go either way. And so they said, well, you know what we're going to do? Because of its age, because it's 2 million years old, we'll just say that it's Australopithecus because that's more likely for that age. Um, and so really, it could go either way. And this analysis seems to show that it actually is a human, not, probably not an Australopithecine, and should be called Homo sediba. And several people's different evolutionary trees do show Australopithecus sediba as closer to humans than to the Australopithecines. So that may be something that changes even in the secular community. Um, now, if that's true, what I'm telling you here is up on this table, these three are human skulls plus a bunch of others, and these are not humans, okay? What that means, if that's true, is that humans used to have a lot more diversity than they do today, okay? So we look at people today and we're like, oh, it's cool how there's like, you know, people of different backgrounds and different hair colors and heights and weights and skin colors and eye colors and all kinds of things like that. But you used to have people that were very different. Um, you could have had people that were, had almost no forehead or were much smaller. In fact, there's a um, population of people we found fossils of in Indonesia called um, Homo floresiensis. They're also called the Hobbit people. As adults, they would have been this height of a Hobbit, like Frodo Baggins, okay? Um, and they were very small, um, which is really interesting. So there used to be a lot more diversity. And so what a creationist would expect then, if, if that's true, we would expect that there'd be some places in the earth where you could find all of that diversity in one place. And what's really cool is there is a place like that, and it's called Demonese, which is in the country of Georgia, not the state of Georgia. Okay, make that very clear. Former Soviet Republic, not sweet tea capital kind of thing. Um, so in one cave in, in Demonese, they found five skulls. And these are the five skulls up here. I thought about bringing them, but my box wasn't big enough, so I didn't. Because um, we have all five over at Masters, the copies of them. Okay, they all look very different from each other. So skull five down on the right, or the, yeah, your right-hand side there, that one has a very long face, and its jaw is incredibly strong, whereas um, skull two and three have very flat faces. Um, skull four has no teeth, and it's not because, like, they're missing or something. It's actually a very old individual where the teeth have fallen out, and they've continued to live after losing their teeth. Um, and so all these skulls are found in the same place and basically the same horizon in the cave. And so this was a big problem. Like, okay, you know, the evolutionists that are working on this, they're saying, what do we do? Because we would assume if you find a bunch of skulls in a cave and it's the, basically the only thing you're finding there, you'd think, yeah, these are all the same species, but they look so different from each other. But are we really going to assign somewhere between two to five different species for five skulls in the same cave? And so this has been like a big debate that's been going on. 
But this is something we might expect from a creationist perspective. And what's really cool is, oh, you can't see it. That's so sad. <laughs> see that little circle that's just randomly up there? Okay, there's actually a map there. Um, and it's pointing out Georgia, okay? And Georgia is very close to Ararat is the point. So these are people that potentially would be seeing, you know, closer descendants of people that got off the ark. Um, another cool thing is Homo naledi. Uh, Homo naledi was just found in 2015. I was going to bring the skull, and I, I forgot. It's at Masters. We have a 3D printed one. Um, I don't know why I tell you guys that, because then it just disappoints you. I know why I tell you, because then you'll come visit me. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, and it's found in South Africa, and this is one of the most complete fossil hominids known, um, because in one cave, they found almost every bone in the body, you can see there, and many, many individuals, and there's more material. They said they've estimated they've only got 10% of the material out of the cave right now. And Lee Berger, the guy who worked on this, he's like, yeah, and there's probably two or three other caves, okay? Um, now, what's really crazy about this cave, you can see the, an, um, like a cross-section of the cave up there, you have to go through something called the Superman's Crawl, okay? The Superman's Crawl... Um, is very tiny um, in height. So I want to say, see, I'm going to get this wrong. I want to say like 20 centimeters or something like that. It's very, very small. Um, and so when they had people go through there, they realized when they were asking for people to come work on this, we actually have to specify people's dimensions, okay? And so what they did when they put out the call for like, um, they said, we need anthropologists, paleontologists, archaeologists, anyone with that kind of training, and you must have the following dimensions. Um, and so they just like listed like how big you could be. And so it turned out that the only people who got to go through there and were scientists that worked on it were young women because they were the only ones that could fit. There was one guy who signed up, um, but he lied about his dimensions because he wanted to work on the project. And he, he confessed to that later and didn't come. So um, it's really, really crazy thing. And then you go through that and then you have to climb something called the dragon's back and then you fall down a chute and then you're in the chamber back there. Okay, now what's really interesting about this cave is when you're in that chamber, there's no other bones. It's just Homo naledi. Um, now, there's like an occasional rodent tooth, and then there's like some owl bones. But those are animals that got lost later, you know, back in the cave, got disoriented and died. Um, but you don't find them buried with other kinds of animals. Um, and everything in there seems to be from one species, Homo naledi. And um, there's no tooth marks on the bones. There's no evidence of transport from water or from mud flows or anything like that. There's no evidence of a cave collapse. So the scientists who worked on this, they said the only conclusion we come up with is that these guys purposely buried their dead back there. They dragged their bodies of people they knew, or they wouldn't say people, homo naledi they knew, and threw them back there. And if you're in that deep of a cave, it probably implies you have fire. Now, they haven't found direct evidence for that yet, but it's leaning that way. And when they looked at these things, they said, well, they got a really confusing mixture of primitive advanced traits. They're probably like about 2 million years old. And then when they finally got a date on it, they realized it was only 300,000 to 250,000 years old. And in their model, that means that Homo naledi was living at the same time as um, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. And so this was really, really surprising that you'd have this unusual mixture of traits. It's hard to put on a phylogenetic tree, and it looks like a human despite having weird traits in it. And we say, yeah. That's exactly what we're predicting. So this is an exciting time to be a creationist and looking at this stuff. So as we conclude, I want to be really clear. Humans are distinct from other animals, okay? Um, there are some similarities between humans and apes, and especially the fossil ones, but we still can detect a discontinuity um, between them. And humans used to be even more morphologically diverse. So some people look at these and they say, oh, but this just, it looks so different from us. Could this really be a human? You know, and... My suggestion for you to think about is 
that's exactly what Europeans did as they visited other places in the world, right? They go to Australia, they meet Australian Aborigines, or they go to the Falkland Islands, and they meet the Falkland Islanders. And they say, well, they're just so different. Maybe they're subhuman, right? They said, maybe they're not quite the same level as human as, as us. And so some people kept Aborigines in zoos or pygmies in zoos. And that's really messed up because these are descendants of Adam. They, they are... Um, they have the image of God, right? And so just because someone looks very different than us doesn't automatically imply it's not a human. Okay, so we've got to be really careful about that kind of thing. We don't want to practice, I don't know if I want to say it this way, but paleontological racism. You're like, that's kind of the idea is you, because they can't defend themselves, right? They're dead. We can't ask them. Um, and we need to base our theology in scripture um, and engaging in this topic requires humility. I don't want you leaving here today saying like, oh, we got it all figured out. We don't, Okay. But the point is, we do have good answers, we have good leads, we're working on things, and we can be confident that scripture is true. And so we don't need to be afraid of what's going on in science. We can enjoy this stuff, learn about this stuff, and praise God.